Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. First question, what is the difference between a relapse and a slip? This is a great question, and we get asked this a lot. What does it mean to have a recovery community guide you? Oh, those are both great questions. So yeah, uh, those are di- two different questions? Yeah. They're just it, short? It, you it read them both? Yeah, so I did. So check in answered now. You, you oh, okay, great. So the first one is fairly simple, I think, which is, um, to me, a relapse is... I go back to old behavior and I don't tell anyone and I keep doing it. So if I were an alcoholic, that means I would start drinking again and no one would know and I'd hide it. And then I'd eventually end up, you know, being screwed up. So a relapse is something that you start, whether it's intentional or not, you end up back where you were, but you don't do anything about it. You just keep hiding it. And a slip to me is something that happens. It happened. You looked at the porn, you call this person, but you immediately go to your people who you trust and you say, Hey, this just happened. And I'm worried about myself. And can you help me? And then you go to your spouse and you say, Hey, this happened. I know it's not going to be a happy day, but I want to be honest with you and let me know what's going on. And then we move on. Um, and the difference is of course, accountability and relationship, because when I'm alone, I could do all kinds of things. And when I'm alone with my thoughts, I could do all kinds of things. And the reason that we want to avoid it moving forward very far is I'm very tempted to hide. You know, I don't want anyone to, I don't, we have to push ourselves toward that honesty and integrity, but yeah, that's the difference. And what is the other question? Um, what does it mean to have your recovery community guide you? Well, I can tell you what it meant for me. It meant that I didn't make any decisions around sex without calling usually my sponsor or someone in my program. And I mean, it's no, think about AA, you know, I, if I felt like drinking and I would probably call Tammy and say, Hey, Tammy, I feel like drinking. I know you're an AA. Can you help me? I'm just new. Um, it's the same thing. It's I, I use these people as my accountability source, my guide. The reason we have sponsors is so we can have someone who's a role model to look up to and, you know, and, and someone will listen to because sometimes our own thinking isn't the best thing to listen to. So it's really about, and I think it's also not to be too deep, but Uh, I argue for 12 step every time because therapy ends go for a year, go for five years, go for 20, like I did, (laughs) but therapy will end and we have a lifetime problem. And I don't want to be in therapy for 25 years, the rest of my life, because I, you know, I need support for this problem, but I don't necessarily need to be actively working on it with people. So I always think a 12 step program is a place you can go the rest of your life. No one will ever charge you. The minute you walk in the room, you are a part of. If you raise your hand, you need help. Someone will come over and they'll invite you for coffee or they'll talk to you or they say, let's, here's my phone number. Call me later. So I think, yeah. And Tammy, I'm sure you have much more to say about it. That's my two cents or three. Well, my thought is, and it isn't just about like, oh, Rob's thinking about drinking, you know, and so he calls me, it's like, you know, I'm having a crappy day, or I'm having like, the the times I've needed my recovery community in the past bunch of years had nothing to do with thinking about drinking or whatever. It was about like, I was, 
I, I was off my serenity. I was out of sorts. Something was happening in my world. I just needed somebody to, you know, to remind me that I'm okay. I'm sober. You know, I have a roof over my head. I mean, like all of those really practical things. And I was like, oh, I am okay. You know, but it, it, it didn't even have anything to do recently with those type of things. So the recovery community, I, I was, I was a young person when I came in and I was immature and I, they helped me. They raised me up. They taught me how to live life differently. And I needed that. And so the recovery community is way more than just not doing whatever the acting out behavior it is. It's guiding and support. Like, like Dr. Rob said, it's about, you know, you know, they'll accept you no matter what, you know, but they'll, they'll listen. And the good recovery community isn't going, oh, you're just, you're trying and you're doing so good. It's like, you know, have you thought about this or the, you know, this step says this or whatever, or, you know, acceptance is the key on page, you know, I mean, like, it's that type of thing where there's accountability as well as support. It's, you know, it's loving and nurturing. And I, I just want to add more things. If there are any addicts listening is that, you know, a lot of time we're told all the time, reach out for help, you know, call somebody when you're in trouble, make sure. But if you don't stay connected to people, I know if I didn't, if I wasn't regularly talking to someone, I don't think I'd call them when I was in trouble, <laughs> you know? And so it's building that community of people that I may be fine most of the time, but I, but they're there when I need them and I'm there when they need them. And the other piece for me is also service, you know, to be able to learn to, a lot of us feel so badly about ourselves that the idea that we would grow and others would look up to us and want our help is incredibly, and we give it, is an incredible gift. It's part of the process. If you stay around long enough and you do well enough, then you can be a guide to others. And one of the things that makes us feel best about ourselves in life is helping other people. It's really true. Yeah. Well, yeah, yes, for a number of reasons, but also that, wow, I have learned enough to be able to support somebody else in a different way. So, so it's an acknowledgement that I actually do have something to give. So, so it's, yes, I'm helping somebody else, but it also, you know, helps remind me of how far I have come. So right. I just put another one in the answer. So Thanks. how do you protect your children when their essay father has behaved in a predatory manners? Uh, grooming older non-related kids, expose himself to older kids, use porn in the presence of minor children. And this is probably a great place to talk about sex addiction versus sex offender. Can you um, elaborate on that, please? Yeah. So this is sexual offending behavior. Um, when you engage in sex or sexualized behavior that the person either is not old enough to give permission or they're mentally ill or they're drunk or, or they're asleep. I mean, when you all the way to rape and violent forms of sex. If someone doesn't have your permission, then you're using them. And it doesn't matter, you know, certain ages to date or legal and say of some states and some, you know, in different countries, but the way you can universally look at offending is if it's non-consensual. So no child, no underage person can ever give consent because they're not old enough. So the other thing is I'm really glad you're anonymous <laughs> because, um, even though I'm not working with you, if you work with any therapist in the country, they will report this issue to child services. Um, this is what, it, this is no different to me than if you said, uh, my, my, the kids, my father's kids is hitting them. My father's, the father of my children is hitting them and they're coming home with bruises. It's the same thing as child services would step in, they would evaluate. So honestly, if, if, if I had a spouse that was exposing themselves to kids and using the porn in the presence of minor children, I'd probably be arrested. I mean, it would be reported and I would be endangering children and they would take my kids away from me. So just to say it, like if this is something you're not dealing with, first of all, the damage is 
I'll tell you what the damage is. The damage isn't just the person who does it to you. If you know this is going on and your children know what's going on and you're not protecting them, the real damage is why didn't mom protect us? Why didn't mom or auntie or whatever just take this person away? I hear guys say over and over again that it wasn't what happened to them. It's that, that they didn't get help with it, you know, and so they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't feel safe enough, whatever it was. So I want to say that you have a role in this and your protection of them is keeping this person away. Um, you have to change the locks. You, and also you yourself, by the way, if you don't feel you have the strength or you're being violated in some way, or you yourself can call child services, you know, as long as you were doing your job and taking good care of your kids, you can say, I found this and I'm freaked out and I don't want my children to harm and I love my partner, but um, it really just depends. Um, but this is kind of behavior that is horrifying um, on every level. And I hope that you're able to get some help with it. Well, and you know about the, um, that he's exposed himself to older kids. I don't know. I don't know what their parents know. Those kids need support too. So, so if this is just going on and at least it's not my kids, then, you know, then picking up the phone and calling someone is, uh, like, I think the right thing to do, but that's me. And by the way, if this found, like if a teacher finds this out, or someone else is a little bit more aware, they're going to call somebody and they're, but Tammy's point is really good, I think, because I've had clients who like coach the kids soccer team, you know, or, you know, and there they are with kids in the locker room, whatever, or they're going, or they're a Y counselor and they're going to camp, you know, I think that I know for me as a professional, when I heard things like this, I didn't just feel I had to protect the child who was in the home, I felt, well, I didn't feel I knew that I had a responsibility to make sure that this person wasn't coming in contact on a regular basis with children. So this is a very, very big issue. And it, this is not sex addiction. It may be part of it. In fact, I just wanna say I did, um, some of you know, I do podcasts and I do a podcast called Sex, Love and Addiction. And uh, there is, one of the leaders in my field is Stephanie Carnes, Dr. Stephanie Carnes. And we did a, I think a very popular podcast and one I'm hearing Tammy this last week on sex addiction and violence, sex addiction and offending. So if you listen to Sex, Love, and Addiction, the most recent podcast is one on this very topic um, because we both felt like, wow, we need to talk about this. It's in the news. And so we did. So I think if you switch to the open, you should be, I think we're tracking now. So I am the partner of a sex addict husband. Is that what you, okay. And I'm confused about responsibility versus no control. Is the sex addict responsible for their actions if they have no control? When they see it as a red flag when they started about when they were starting thinking about sleeping with prostitutes. So I'm going to let you go first, Tammy, because I think this is a complicated question. I'm not sure I've got it right. So I'm going to make you make a stab at it. So I often say to partners and addicts, but you know, addiction is a reason, not an excuse. So we are always responsible for our actions, even if they're during our acting out behavior. You know, Dr. Rob was talking about the 12, actually we were both talking about the 12 steps and part of the 12 steps is taking responsibility for our actions and how we've hurt people. The difference is until I had tools to use, until somebody showed me a different way. When I was in active addiction, I didn't know any difference. And there might've been one fleeting moment before you know, he reached out and you know, hired a prostitute. I don't know. I don't know what the initial circumstances were. You know, and there, there were something I suspect leading up to all of that. The clients that come to us at Seeking Integrity Los Angeles treatment program, you know, the acting out is a symptom. I say this all the time too, it's a symptom. We're looking at the underlying issues. So what's going on behind that? So it doesn't give us an excuse to, oh, I have no control and I can just go act out. You know, 
I've learned enough tools. If I chose to go act out now, it was absolutely my choice and my decision. You know, I could have picked up the phone and called Dr. Rob, you know, so, so it, there's a difference. There's a tipping point where, you know, inactive addiction, we really are out of our minds, you know, learning to do things differently. Now we, we don't have control and we're never fixed, but we can learn to do life differently. And, and we know that because we, you know, we hear from clients all the time that, you know, it's changed their life. It's recovery's changed our life. So does that makes, you know, sense? Tammy, what you brought up for me is the idea of relapse prevention, which is, you know, we, yes, we have people look at the path. I was funny. I was going to mention seeking integrity too, because I think this is a part of their path is when I'm acting out in the world, you know, I just think I want to go sex and I do it. Like it doesn't, you know, oh, this will be fun. That'll be fun. I have an opportunity, whatever. It's opportunistic. It's whatever it is. But once you have these tools, you know that you have to call someone, you know, have to reach out to someone, you know, you got to uh, write or do or walk or you know, do anything you can to not do it. Then, then I am responsible. I am accountable to the actions that I don't take. So if I end up going to the massage parlor, but I didn't call my sponsor, I didn't call my therapist, I didn't reach out to my group, I didn't go online to one of our groups, and I haven't told anyone, then, then I've screwed myself, and now I'm accountable for the whole thing. So what Tammy means is if you're drinking and you're drinking in the bar every day, you're hanging out in sex clubs all the time, you may not know any other lifestyle. I mean, that'd be all you know, and that's how you live, and you just lie and cheat. And But once you have a glimpse of how you've hurt other people and the, the actions you need to take, you're then accountable to those actions. And those actions will keep you sober. It's like I say to the guys in treatment all the time. In fact, right now, because they come to this group and hi guys, see you tomorrow in group or something like that. I thought I'm doing a lecture for you tomorrow, something like that. But anyway, it's like when I have to, I will never, you know, stop wanting to act out. It occurs to me when I'm under stress or um, I'm having a, you know, a, abandonment, someone died or something. It still comes up in my mind, but I know that it's not about sex. I say to myself, wow, that crazy brain of mine. In fact, my sponsor years ago, Tammy used to say, when he wanted to act out, he would say, I'm having a flare up of my mental illness, <laughs> which meant, you know, he recognized that he was in trouble, that it was not because of an opportunity to act out, but that he was scared or vulnerable. He didn't know what he was feeling. I don't always know what I'm feeling, but I know I need to reach out to someone. I know that I don't want to have sex. I think it's an idea in the moment. Why didn't I want to sex this morning? Why didn't I have it? Because this is my way of escaping. And if I just get that every time I'm thinking this way, it means I need to reach out to someone and ask for help. That is the action that will keep me sane. Yeah. It's the data. It's like, oh, I need to, I need to get help and input on this. So, okay. Next question. You have reframed the concept of codependence and introduced prodependence. Isn't it time you introduced a more simple words to explain intimacy disorder as these words seem to be complicated than they are? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, so codependence has been a word in the language for almost 40 years. I think most people understand what it means have, you know, not, well, I think the concept has become distorted and it's been problematic for lots of people, but I think that p things need names. And when I talk about prodependence, it's a whole way of viewing partners that accepts that they love people who have made mistakes or are broken and they stayed with us because they love us not because there's something wrong with them and codependency said there's something wrong with you for loving this person so to yes they are just concepts and but there are also ways of living and viewing your life and viewing other people if i were a very giving person well sometimes i can be if i but if you i was are. you know constantly volunteering my time and well i do but yeah. anyway, if I was a very, very generous person, you know, these days, someone might say, even to a fault, they say, well, you're not taking care of yourself. You're taking care of all these people. You must be so codependent. What if I'm just a very giving person who's pro-dependent, who's encouraging a dependency? Who... So I don't know. 
that's another way of saying it. I'm not sure that people, pro-dependence is not about any disorder. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with partners. I'm simply saying that they are pro-positive, their relationships. And when they stand up for them, it's about of love. So I think saying you're pro-positively dependent is probably a good thing. So I wish I had better words for you. Um, I'm not sure how to well, fix well, it. The whole intimacy disorder and, you know, people often assume intimacy is just about sex and i'm going like no ask a sex addict they can have sex and have zero intimacy and dr rob and i've actually talked about this because i think anybody even even an alcoholic has an intimacy disorder because we're you know we, oh, you we are all about escaping and numbing out and everything else so so and not turning to people is, not avoiding right. people Right. So that's really what it is. But we have people, you know, a, a porn addict, you know, a, a serial cheater, all of those. I kind of, when people call me, I say, you know, it's kind of a catch all for all of the people that, you know, don't identify necessarily as sex addicts, but, you know, have mm. issues with relationships and things like that. So. Well, also, to be honest, the term sex addict is not particularly appealing to a lot of people as, you know, but if you say, wow, you have an intimacy disorder, which is true, it's a lot more palatable, a lot easier for people to swallow than saying, you know, you have a sex addiction. And so it is an opening and a doorway into helping people look at themselves without shame. Yeah. But nobody that I recall calls and says, I have an intimacy disorder and I think I need treatment. No. They've got consequences with, you know, in our case, sexual acting out, you know, sometimes combined with or porn. Um, yeah. Yeah. Or sometimes combined with chemical addiction, but yeah. Anyway. Okay. Enough said, let's go on to the next question. Um, Dr. Rob, is being sexually abused as an adult common for love addicts? I've been looking into the polyvagal system and the freeze response to abuse. Sexually abused as an adult. So that's an interesting question because um, I'm not exactly sure. So let me give you some thoughts about this. I don't know if this is helpful. To me, mental health in part is the balance between our emotions and our intellect. So when I go on a date, I might, oh, they're so nice and they're so wonderful and they're so sweet and look in their eyes and this is great, that's emotional. But healthy people also have an intellectual ability to say, but they're using heroin and they're still married and I probably should go on another date. The problem is being a love addict, whatever you want, it's an intimacy disorder, right? I am completely in my emotions when I'm dating. And so I'm not thinking clearly, I'm so caught up in the maybe and if, and we used to say, uh, a way of saying, like I would throw Christmas lights over people and they were just sparkling and, but I didn't really see who they were. And so I would move forward on my emotions without really having this intellectual ability to say, wait a minute, this person may not be safe. This may not be a good idea. And so I think people who are love addicts, if you say, want to say it that way, miss what healthier people see we miss, and a sexual abuse is a big part of it, which is I've been abused and I've, I've been abused. I probably didn't see it coming and maybe I don't see this coming. So it's really a, a question of awareness. And what I always say to the women I work with is don't go on a date without calling someone. Don't go on a date and dates are when you're back out in the world. Dates are, you know, two people coming together in a brightly lit coffee shop to chat for a while and separate. No candles, no moonlight, no wine. And the second date might be going for a walk. And I don't think we should have sex for a while. And it's not because I'm your grandmother. It's because in our world, we need to go slow so that our intellect can catch up with our emotions and we can more clearly see who the person is. And this is why you have to reach out because when I'm dating someone and I'm in that love addiction place, I just think everything is about them and wonderful. And all I see is moonbeams and starlight. 
And it's when I run it by my recovering friends that they say, well, wait a minute, you said you wanted someone who was this or that, and this person is that or this. So I use other people's intellect to guide me toward what healthy relationships are and not rather than depending on myself, because I know I've made mistakes in this area and I don't need to prove anything. I can get others to support me in dating. So that might be helpful, might not. Any thoughts, Terry? I do, because it's, it's being sexually abused as an adult. And I, I, I would just want to mm-hmm. encourage you, if this is currently happening, you know, please, please, you know, I, I don't know what it would take for you to be safe, but, you know, I, I don't think anybody should be sexually abused, physically abused, verbally abused. So, so, you know, if you can do something to find safety, you know, I would encourage that. And then, you know, there's a lot of people who have processed through abuse trauma, you know, doing trauma work. And there are a lot of really good therapists that can help support working through that aspect as well. So there and is if you help. call or write, if you Tammy, T-A-M-I at seekingintegrity.com. The reason I tell you that is Tammy and I have been in this field a long time and we don't just refer to people, we refer to people that we know are good. And in the trauma arena, it's such a sensitive, vulnerable. In fact, I had a client recently say to me, Tammy, that they were told they had an intimacy problem. And what the therapist said to do was stare them in the eye to see when they felt uncomfortable. And I'm thought, oh my God, this person has no idea what they're doing. So uh, it's addiction therapists and trauma therapists really are experts. And it's hard to find us because in a sea of therapists who say they do everything and they know everything, um, it's best to rely on advice. And so we're glad they give that to you or you know wherever you feel people can support you in it. But these are tough areas. These are specialty areas. This isn't like going to a therapist and saying, well, my mom died or I got depressed or I don't know what to do about a job or my daughter. This is about very, very deep and, and uh, early damage that requires a lot of help. Okay, next question. My husband denied he was an addict when I first found out about a supposed one night stand. Now he says he's an addict. What's the difference between an addict and someone who just cheats repeatedly? Well, um, I think people who cheat repeatedly are immature. I think people who cheat on a regular basis don't really understand what their relationship means, how important it is that they need to protect it. And so they sort of go out in the world and it's like, when I'm out in the world, well, I think of it like this. It's like the kid who's told not to go to the cookie jar because his mom said no cookies and he goes and sneaks the cookies. And then she, you know, we do what we want to do and we don't really consider um, how it's going to affect people or any of that. So cheaters tend to be immature. We have this idea uh, in therapy called keeping someone in mind. So Tammy's in mind, whenever I make something going on in business, whatever it is, I think, oh, I better call Tammy to check it out because we work closely together in different states, by the way, in case anybody thinks. Um, But I I have Tammy in mind. I think I'm not going to make this decision without running it by her or questioning. That to me is, is mature way of thinking about it. So in a relationship, if I am making decisions on my own and not reaching out for help, and then I am very likely to make mistakes over and over again because I'm immature. Someone who cheats repeatedly has usually had consequences and they disregard them. Um, They are doing it, uh, that's not all they're doing. They're probably looking at porn. They're probably doing other stuff. They don't seem to care how it affects you. I mean, you know, if I was cheating and I didn't have these issues and you found out, I think I would be, it would be very hard for me to see your face, you know, having cheat on you and hurt you. But as a sex addict, what I'm going to do is deny, 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 push you away, try to blame you so that I can keep doing what I'm doing. And um, by the way, one more thing, sex addiction is a repetitive pattern that often starts in 
late adolescence or you know certainly by your early 20s so if someone has not had a history of cheating relationships they don't have a history you know that it probably is more uh, a single or double episode rather than um, something that's a lifelong problem by the way though you won't know until you hear the truth and you won't get the truth that is somebody who's cheating so it's a challenge you have to protect yourself regardless and i mean in every way i have we have guys who are going out during COVID and hitting on doing whatever and then coming home. I have many women I work with who have HPV, because, which causes women's cervical cancer because the guy was asymptomatic. It didn't occur to him there's anything wrong with him. So if you have someone who's cheating, at least protect your health. There's nothing more uh, uh, eye-awakening for a husband when you say, I want you to wear a condom if you're going to have sex with me. That's a pretty eye-awakening moment for us. Um, and of course, we don't want to do it. So things like that, protect yourself. Go get tested. Your husband or spouse says, why are you getting STD test? Well, look what you did. Why would I trust? You know, take care of yourself rather than focusing on what this person is doing because this person is likely to hurt you and not even think twice about it. Next question. In your opinion, what's the difference between sobriety and recovery? This one's on you, Tammy. Start. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, can I answer this? Yeah, okay. So I, I hear all the time, Oh, I just had discovery last week and my husband's in recovery. And I'm like, no, he's not. If he stopped the behavior, I call that abstinence. It's like just stopping the behavior is like, like an al alcoholic stopping drinking. I stopped the drinking. Great. That's abstinence. There's no recovery yet because we're clueless. So then I talk about sobriety and that's a path. And that's like the people that are starting to engage in the 12 steps. They're starting to do things. They're still making a lot of, you know, like not great choices because they don't know better yet. Recovery is a completely different way of living. To me, recovery is I've worked the 12 steps. I'm on a different path. I'm showing up and telling, you know, Dr. Rob, you know, when I told you, you know, whatever, you know, I didn't do whatever, whatever. I'm being accountable for what I'm saying. I'm being accountable for what I'm doing. You know, people can count on me. If I don't do something, I'm going to tell you why I didn't get it done. You know, I, I don't lie. I don't lie to myself. I don't lie to others. So that's recovery. And that's a journey. And you don't get that. I mean, that honestly, that takes really a couple of years to, to really start feeling like you've made, you know, some strides in that. And, but, but you should see, you know, abstinence, stopping the behavior, sobriety. Okay. I'm starting to see, you know, there's a few changes, but recovery is like, you know, they're mostly trustworthy. You, you know, you don't constantly worry is the other shoe going to drop. So that's my take on it. What are your thoughts? I think recovery is a lifelong journey that I understand is not just about my acting out. It's about the way I treat people and the way I look at life and the way I think about my needs versus other needs. I think recovery is a long-term journey that I know I will never be done with till the day I die because I can always grow and I can always be a better person and recovery offers uh, a lifestyle and a support. Um, another way of thinking about it is, and the, and the men that I, we work with at Seeking Integrity really don't like this. Um, they have to find a way to do it for themselves. I don't recover. I might get sober because you got angry at me and you found out. And I might go to treatment because I don't, as all of the people we work with, because I got in trouble. You know, I don't want this person to leave me or I don't want to lose this job or I'm afraid I'll get arrested. You know, that's why people come to treatment and they can get sober. But what we're trying to preach is a lifestyle change. And, you know, again, the guys that I work with, I just tell them, like, you're not going to work more than 45 hours a week. You're going to work 45 hours a week. Those of you who work 60 hours a week, that has to change because you have to dedicate your life to self-care and being reflective and slowing down. Um, we think we can take it all on. I thought I was a superhero. I could do my sexual acting out. I could do my job. I could do my relationship. And we all think we have it so together. But once it all falls apart, 
I think part of the responsibility of the addict, we need to understand how vulnerable we are, that I'm not so strong, I'm not so powerful, and I am very, I'm actually more vulnerable than most people, and I need to pay more attention to how I live my life and live my life, life differently for me. Many people say, oh, I want my, this person to forgive me. I want this to work out. That's great, but we have this phrase, and it seems so silly, but it is so essential, which is whatever I put in front of my recovery, I will lose. And so someone decides, well, I'm going to go to some meetings, but I'm going to keep work as my priority or, um, or, you know, I'm going to keep make my spouse happy and we're going to love each other again. And that you're going to lose that spouse because if you don't learn how to live differently, you're going to end up back where you were. And recovery is about learning to live differently, not just about a behavior. So, yeah, I think between the two of us, we nailed it. Don't you, Tammy? Yeah. And I, I want to take into what you just said, because I often hear from the addicts, you know, including on webinars where they're like, how do I help my partner? And they've completely shifted the focus from how do I work on right. me so that I can be different so that my partner will see that it's like, I'm going to take the focus and I'm going to focus on them. And I need, I need to fix them. I need to help them heal. I'm like, no, you doing what you need to do for you, like for ourselves so that we can be in a different place is how they start seeing that we're different. So. Well, I don't okay. want to add to that. I, we get a lot of, when is my spouse not going to be so angry at me? When are they going to calm down? When, and I think, well, why don't you just let them be angry? I mean, that's not the focus is to get them less yeah. angry or to get them to love you. The focus is on you. And as Tammy said, if I start living my life in recovery, my partner will notice and they will show up, not because I'm saying, I'm sorry, and please forgive me. And, you know, but because they see that life change and it gives them hope. So if you're with someone who's sober, you're not going to have that hope. If you see them changing their lives, you're going to have that hope. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.